I was going to open this morning's session with a quote from the great Leonard Cohen. There's a line in the song, First We Take Manhattan, that goes, it's Father's Day and everybody's wounded. Of course, by accidental design, the session about fathers is on Father's Day, and the book we're talking about is about wounded families and the wounds we hope to heal. And I don't want to bring anyone down, but that Leonard Cohen line has been on my mind all week as we come up to the session. So good morning and welcome to Diana Wichita, driving to Treblinka. My name is Philip Matthews and my minor claim to fame is that a long time ago, I used to work for the listener alongside a bunch of much better writers, including Diana Wichita. <laughs> and my, my memory of the listener Auckland office, and there were at least three different offices back then because the magazine was kind of nomadic. Um, the rest of us on staff would, we would slack around, worry, smoke a lot of cigarettes, go to the pub, make a half-assed stab at working and maybe file a story at the end of the week or the week after. Whereas Diana would come in for two days a week, work quietly and intently, and have one of her brilliant, perfectly written TV reviews at the end of it. It happened week after week. To me, consistency is always the hardest thing in journalism. And people think of Diana as funny and insightful and all that, which is true, of course, but we also think of her as diligent. And that diligence, <laughs> don't agree? Okay. <laughs> and that diligence, that hard work, comes through strongly in her superb book, Driving to Treblinka, which is more than a memoir and more than a family history. It's a contribution to world history, as grand as that sounds. It is also revealing, deep, sensitive, self-deprecating, and again insightful and even funny account of trying to solve the mystery of one's own family. Now, one of the great shocks of the book for me is that I always thought of Diana as quite a reserved person, and yet this is a highly revealing, highly personal and emotional story, and that dichotomy is kind of interesting. <laughs> and, it's a, and that's a nerve-wracking way to start, with that dichotomy of... What was I thinking? What were you thinking? So maybe we could start with the what were you thinking, and, why, and how you negotiate that issue of exposing, or not exposing, revealing, talking about difficult family stuff, Diana. Right, well, I suppose... Uh, the main point of the whole thing is to get to the age I now am and to realise that there was a lot of not, not talking about things. There was far too much silence and far too many secrets in our family. And you always think you're not going to repeat those things, you know. You set out not to and then find you have. And your children are saying, why didn't I know that? Why haven't you told me? And, uh, you know, I think it was probably the pressure of the third generation coming along. Uh, you know, I think I say in the book at one point, a very pivotal moment for me was when my daughter and my niece were there and I've been, you know, doing my usual trying to research and not finding out anything, getting constant emails back saying, you know, the equivalent of there is no sign your father or your family ever existed uh, while everyone else was kind of maybe finding something. And they said, um, you know, I said, uh, you know, I, I just want to give up. And they said, it's ridiculous. You cannot not know where your father is buried. It's not acceptable. You have to keep trying. You have to try harder. And I think, you know, that's one of those moments where you suddenly realize you've got stuck in some narrative, which is that, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done. I've tried. And they simply weren't accepting that. Uh, so the whole book's been like that. It's been sort of confronting these narratives that you build up to get by, basically, because you can't dwell in these mysteries and, and, in fact, in the horror of a lot of what happened. 
permanently or you wouldn't get up every morning. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been about that. Um, and I think uh, that those pushes. And other, I wanted to mention that Philip, uh, back in the day when I wasn't engaging with any of this, uh, was writing some stories that engaged me deeply, uh, mm. like the Joel Hayward yeah, case. It ha happened in this, this particular place. You know, I was yes. living in Auckland then. Yes, that's right. He did some very, very fine journalism. He's, there were two or three journalists that even were tackling these things. And uh, even though I wasn't engaging with this history very much then, it meant a huge amount to me. Thanks. And uh, at the listener also, Steve Bornius, who may be here, um, when I contributed a, a very tentative essay to a book for a second generation, an Auckland second generation, people of my kind, with my kind of background. It was a kind of memoirs and cookbook. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> called Mixed Blessings. Something, you may be able to, everybody you may be able to find it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I was asked to contribute an essay for this. And the recipe was fine. I went to my mother and got her a cheesecake, which she used to make for my father and for his Jewish friends in Canada. And, um, but when it came to trying to write anything about this, I just couldn't do it. And my dear friend, Debbie Knowles, um, who's now very ill, unfortunately, she um, rang me up and said, where's your piece? We're, we're, we need it. And I said, no, I just can't do it. I cannot do it. I can't remember anything. And she said, well, what can you remember? And uh, talked to me for gently and kindly for an hour. And I had the piece to her the next day. <sighs> But when it hit the list of this book, I didn't mention it. I was just mortified by the whole thing. Um, Steve had a look at it, and he said, right, we're going to print your essay out of this. And I went, oh, my God, you know. But in fact, you know, those things that happened way back then were pivotal to mm -hmm. finally getting to grips with this. So you guys deserve a lot of thanks. So my whole, my whole narrative about you being diligent has fallen apart completely <laughs> at this point. And Hopeless, as you can diligent, see. You've been, you've been nagged along by a few key nagged, people. Nagged, kicked, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, we, I, we haven't talked about what the book's about, and I assume everyone here knows, but should we say, just sketch out what you do in the book and what it's about and who it covers? Do you want to do that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically what happened was... <laughs> Well, it's a long story, but... Um, <laughs> it's worth reading, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was born in Canada. My father was a Polish Jew who escaped the Holocaust, um, or survived the Holocaust by jumping from a train bound to Treblinka. And Treblinka was one of the extermination camps. It wasn't like Auschwitz, where some people worked. You were mostly dead within two hours of getting there. And... Uh, he and his whole family were bound for there. Uh, he somehow managed to jump off the train. Uh, through a window, I've been told. They're tiny, but so was he at that point. He was a very short man, and he was very small at that stage, of course, after a time in the ghetto. So he hid out in the woods, was liberated with partisans, told us very little about this, the odd little story like about running into a couple of young German soldiers and pretending they had guns in their pockets, but finding out these young guys were just as terrified as they were, and the German soldiers went and helped them get some food and stuff. So he'd tell us those slightly more, um, less terrifying stories. So he met my mother, who was a New Zealander. She went on her OE. She got sick of... I think she was engaged to an American during the war. She was. He got appendicitis and got shipped home, and that was that. She never heard from him again. And she was, you know, in her late 20s, and she said she had got sick of 
you know, um, dates that involved the guy vomiting out the back of some dance hall. Mm. So she thought she would see the world. She had an aunt or a great aunt in uh, Vancouver Island, so off she went to Vancouver, where she immediately went to work for my father, who had gone to Sweden and then to Canada after the war and was in the textiles business, English textiles. She went and worked for him, and he clicked his heels, brought her flowers, mm. kissed her hand, and that was that. So <laughs> he also, he was 10 years older than her, so he was nearly 40 when his first child was born, so he made sure she was pregnant before they got married. He wasn't messing around at that stage. And obviously, good Catholic girl, she agreed. <laughs> so, yeah, and so we grew up there until I was about 13 in a house that was increasingly difficult. Uh, and uh, then it was announced that we were coming to New Zealand. My mother has a big Catholic family here, and. I later discovered it was sort of a rescue operation. They had paid to bring her and the three children, my sister, my brother and I, down here to, to Auckland, where we were shipwrecked on Milford Beach in a tiny leaking batch and uh, suffering from severe culture shock. And my father was to follow, but he never did. And things got more and more confused. We had letters at first the odd phone call, the letters became more strange, then all contact ceased. And as far as we knew, uh, he'd lost contact with us. And then a few years later, I found out a little bit about my mother wanted a divorce because she, you know, we told her, where is your father, our friends would say. And we would say, well, he's coming from Vancouver. And he never turned up. And then my mother, what are the odds, met a guy from Vancouver at Bisthew Wine and Spirits, where she was working. And he eventually moved into our house. And all my friends said, oh, so this is your father from Vancouver. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> when you're 15, trying to explain that was mortifying. Um, yeah, so as far as we knew, I think I was about 19 when I heard he was ill and in some sort of institution. And the impression I got was that he was beyond any kind of reach at that stage. I later found out that wasn't true. But uh, my mother was off to Japan with my stepfather, and we were surviving as students, living day to day, you know how you do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was over the years, I made little attempts to try and find out what happened, but it's really quite recently, in the last four years probably. Mm -hmm that I found out most of what they, I know. You very diligently found out what happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, at one point, is, you talk about a graphic novel by Bernice Eisenstein. Yes. It's called I Was a Child of Holocaust Survivors, mm. which is a pretty straightforward title. Is there a genre? Is there a whole body of work of second-generation writers? Yes, um, there is increasingly a body of work of second-generation mm. writers. Um, I know a friend who's got one in, in the form of fiction coming out quite soon. Uh, in New Zealand. Uh, and I must say, I haven't read a huge amount of mm. them. I was so sort of engrossed in just uh, uh, read. But I think it is time passing as well. Oddly and sadly, I think people who haven't even got this kind of family, but even people just looking into their own family, it's often when your kids are grown up, uh, you're so busy in that period, certainly in the chaotic, fragmented kind of family we had, just moving ahead and and trying to create a new life for yourself. And I think it's only later that you have the luxury of looking back in a way, or the psychic space for it as well. So there's a lot of people doing it 
belatedly. And whenever I meet one of them, we're always kicking ourselves because there were people alive we could have spoken to. Uh, and it's always just too late for that. But yep, a lot of that going on. Do you, um, do you have a sense of, sorry, this is a very pompous question, but I'm gonna ask it. Do you have a sense of making a contribution to world history when you write a book about like this? It's not I just a family story, it's... Yeah, no, I had no sense of anything when I was doing it, really. Um, you know, I think what I... Because I never was going to do it, except I think, you know, I was trying to find out stuff, and I think I probably thought being a writer, I'd eventually put something down for the family. But it was really when a publisher, Mary Varnum from Our Press, got in touch and said she'd read one of the few things I wrote that alluded to this family history. You've got a strange family history. Do you want to write about it? Two years before, we'd been talking, and she said, have you got anything you want to write about? Would you like to do a book? And we probably talked for half an hour and kicked around a few ideas, none of which came to fruition. Never occurred to me to say to her, uh, you know, I might have a story here or I should do something about this. So it was a weird denial, I think I was in about it. And also New Zealand's so far from these events. And I think, you know, I've found, and even my daughter, who's very engaged with all this stuff, has found... You know, back in the day, you'd be going around and people would be saying what their fathers did, and you'd get it to me, and, well, he was a Holocaust survivor and his whole family got murdered by the Nazis, and it's a conversation stopper. It's really hard to mm. move on from that. Mm. <laughs> and once I got around to doing this, you know, I've had friends say to me, we knew not to ask you about it because it upset you. And I said, what? I always thought I'd, you know, done a very good job of looking cool about it all. But... Um, so there was a dynamic going on that prevented it, yeah, being discussed. So no. And then when I started doing it, it was sort of more just... I started with trying to remember stuff from way back then and went... And you go into, I don't know, people who've written about this sort of family stuff, childhood, and you go into a weird liminal kind of space mm. and uh, it was quite haunted and quite magic in a way. And it was like, in a way, getting it back while you were doing it. Um, and it was like I was having a relationship with him. And so there was something quite... And at one point, I was doing the um, Grimshaw Sargison Fellowship, so we were in this little attic by Albert Park, away from home, away from everything. And I was having dreams, and you just enter this weird zone. So I never thought of it beyond that. It was, it was when the book went off into the world that I freaked mm. out completely. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm not a genealogist, I'm not a historian, and the last thing, you know, I made it really clear, I, I am not writing a book about the Holocaust. I'm writing a book about my family, mm. and that's all I can do, really. It has, and it had to be personal, because, A, if I'm exposing my family to public gaze, I have to expose myself. It's just, there's no way that's fair if you don't do that, for me. Um, and the other thing was that... Um, it had to be personal because you have other family members to consider. And it was made very clear to me once or twice that, mm. that, it should, that I should make it clear it's my version of events. I don't know about people in families. When you've got siblings, you can be brought up in the same family and it might as well be two different families. Uh, the versions of life are, are, and what happened. Cue five-hour slightly angry conversations on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to make it very clear that it was my story from my point of view. And, um, yeah, so that's pretty much why it was never going to be mm. anything I felt was a contribution to this bigger 
um, realm in a way. You talked a bit of there about getting into the zone, and I, I've, when I read books like this, I always think, how do people go back and get all that memory? Because I, I can't remember anything. But everyone says that, and it's not true, Philip. You would... <laughs> <laughs> if someone's kicking your ass, you sit down. <laughs> and once you commit to it, I, I mean, the main thing, a wonderful, you know, these things happen, and I'm not in the least bit, I couldn't be less religious or believe in the supernatural or anything, but I think it's just when you open yourself to things, things happen, and they were always there, but you didn't notice them. And I know, being at The Listener, one day, the arts and books editor, um, I saw a book on his desk, and it was Daniel Mendelssohn's The Lost, uh, The Search for a Six of Six Million, I think it's called. And it's about his family, his great uncle. There, was, there were six of them that had disappeared, and no one knew the story. And he set out, it's a brilliant book, he set out to find out. And I, I saw that book, and I said to the arts and books editor, or I left a note, please, 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 can I interview this guy? He was coming to the Auckland Writers Festival. And when I talked to him, of course, I couldn't help but say, yes, now about me, you know. Um, <laughs> I happened to be writing about my family. And um, he gave me a couple of wonderful bits of advice, you know. He just said, um, you've got to open the door to the past knowing you're not going to shut it again, which immediately made me realise that's what I'd always done. Open, try, shut, forget, put it away. And he also said, put yourself in the stream of history. You'll be amazed what happens. And so for me, that's what it felt like. It felt like history is not back there anymore. It's flowing alongside. You can dip into it. You can, it's dynamic. You can interact with it. Obviously, you can't get the person back, which is the tragedy you're left with at the end, and it's all too late for them. But that sense that suddenly history was close and that I could access it was magic in a way. I mean, it was painful. But, um, yeah, it was a very engrossing state. Are you still in that? Or now that you've finished your book, do you step back out of that stream of history? And well, it dumped me back out. It spat me out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I had actually a very hard three or four months um, where I just went into a complete anxiety tailspin and it all seemed a dreadful mistake and what had I done and how would it affect everyone else? Because you put those thoughts aside. I mean, I don't know about you when you're writing journalism, mm. but I get by by not really fully imagining that anyone's ever going to read it, not letting myself... Oh, it's the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you'd be paralysed. You know. um, so it was a bit like that with this. I, and also, I do believe if you're doing this kind of thing, you have to be slightly ruthless, mm. because if you're worried about the possible impact on every single person of everything you said... Uh, again, you just simply couldn't do it. So without being aware of it, I think, I went into, into that state. And then once it was out there, you're just left waiting for all hell to break loose. Um, and yeah, I didn't handle that at all well for a while. Um, then gradually, you know, it's been a mixed bag, but it's been mostly very good and sometimes spectacularly good. So in terms hell of hasn't how broken loose? Hey? Then hell hasn't broken loose? Not entirely. Like, you know, I was... If, I don't know if anyone is an anxious personality, how you imagine the absolute worst for every situation. And I remember, you know, thinking I'm going to go to a book, I hope no one's out there, go, to go to a book um, event and some of my mother's family are going to get up and say, it's all lies or it's not right. Or... And it never happened. In fact, some of my cousins turned up, you know, you're sitting at the book signing table and I look up and there's two of my cousins I haven't seen for probably 
15 years or 20 years, and, and they were great. They were great about it. And my aunties, who I did talk to for the book, I think they found it hard, painful. Um, but in the end, I sent them the book, heard nothing. Wait, wait, wait. In the end, Chris, my partner, said, you have to ring them and ask, hi, Auntie Rosemary, did you get the book? And yeah, I think she did find it hard. And, um, but in the end, she said to me, I'm glad you did it. And once she did that, that was such a relief. So I sent them a huge bouquet of flowers after that. So yeah, there was a long period of just wondering how people were going to react. And in my immediate family, in one or two situations, again, you can never tell. And I think, you know, that whole Daniel Mendelssohn thing, you have to just open the door. You have to live with the uncertainty of it. And you have to remember every time, as I would be reminded by my partner, you know, this is for your father and whatever else happens, you just have to wear it. I was also going to say, if, if there are any family members here with a complaint, we have time for questions <laughs> at the end, so, yeah. <laughs> so save yes. them up. Um, another phrase, I've read, the, I've read the book twice, once last year when it came out, and once more recently for this, and the phrase, I didn't pick it up the first time, and I did the second, which is dark tourism. Oh, yeah. And of course, because of the David Farrier Netflix <laughs> series, right? Dark <laughs> yeah. tourist. Yeah, it's all the rage now. It's all the rage. <laughs> um, you're a bit of a pioneer. <laughs> But it's different for you because this is your story. It's, you're, not, you're not being a voyeur and someone else is suffering. But what do you make of that kind of the ethical issue of the, the so-called dark tourist? Yeah. You know? yeah, I tend to be quite liberal on that, you know? I think people are interacting in their ways with history and it's, it runs the gamut from people who can't speak. I have friends who will not put their feet on the soil of Auschwitz or Treblinka. They will not go there. Their family histories, they just feel, uh, you know, Auschwitz, it is a bit of a tourist experience and it's weird. You're walking through behind a guard who's holding up an umbrella. You're trooping along and I mean, it is grim, so no one's talking and you're trooping through these places and, you know, it does feel a little bit wrong and there's a cafe as my partner is an architect, he looked at the blueprints and everything, and you know, there's a cafe where people were once stripped of their belongings, and um, you know, we were there on a tour, and uh, there was time to go and get a coffee. We just couldn't. We could not eat there. You know, it just felt completely wrong. But on the other hand, we saw young people going through, and sometimes they were being cheeky. You know, they were told, "Do not go into those." cells that people were kept in, you know. So of course they go in and someone takes a picture and, um, and that really bothers some people. We had the same experience at Yad Vashem. Um, there was a group of school kids going through with a Holocaust survivor, taking them through the museum. And at one point they wanted a picture with him. So they all stopped and this old guy was grinning with these students who were adoring him. Uh, and the guide we had said, no, no, you can't do this. There are no pictures in here. There's no smiling. There's no, none of this. And I'm just like, well, he survived the Holocaust. He can smile wherever the, he likes, you know. Um, so I'm quite liberal at that, on that. And we went to the Berlin Memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe and um, kids jumped from on the, you know, stone stelae. Um, from one to the other, and they're not really meant to. And again, you know, I just always remember that Primo Levi said something about um, the, be uh, the purposes of life are the best defense against death. So to me, seeing them interact, you know, they're there. They'll pick up something, 
but they're just being young and full of life. And isn't that mm. okay? Mm. Related to that a bit, the dark tourism things, one of the bits that really struck me is where you go back to Poland and they've kind of recreated oh, Jewish yes. life in Poland, but they're on a Jews there. Yes. It's kind of a strange experience. Yes. Well, this was in 2010, and my partner was in Cambridge for three months, so I was just tagging along, but he was doing some work on murder and memorial memorials, and he said, we need to go to Poland. Of course, mindful of the fact that I'd never been there and of the family history. And I was like, oh, no, we don't really need to. You know, you're busy. We'll go some other time. But no, we did. He made us. So um, you can see a theme here, can't you? <laughs> um, yeah, and so I hadn't done a huge amount of research. I mean, we knew what, uh, that we wanted to go to Auschwitz. We knew... Um, you know, some of the things we were going to do. We didn't have it long at all. I think it was only four or five days. But I hadn't done a lot of research, but I looked up and I thought, oh, you can stay in Kazimierz. There's a hotel that was, is a Jewish hotel. And this is the area that used to be um, in Krakow, the Jewish area. So we thought, oh, we'll go there. And then I got there and it was the weirdest thing because there were all these shops with Jewish names on preserved and you could go and have kosher food, you could hear klezmer music, you could do all that. But then there were these souvenir shops, so these little figures of very stereotypical Jews, some with money bags or coins, you know? Mm. And I'm thinking, is this right? This can't be right. That'd so, be fair, you should go and do a series there. <laughs> yeah, we'll suggest it. Uh, season two. Yeah. <laughs> Bad but, gift shops um, of the world. Yeah, so I did a bit of reading at that point and found out it was a thing and a very contentious thing. Some people found it anti-Semitic. Some people found it nostalgia for a lost, which is how it's presented, nostalgia for a lost, vibrant community. And that's fine, but the way they do it, um, you know, it, 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 it is kind of anti-Semitic and weird because we went to this restaurant and they had a lovely menu and it's, you know, before the war... Everyone lived happily together, and the Gentiles and the Jews, and lovely times, which isn't 100%, well, anywhere near 100% true. But, um, and I kept turning over the pages, because they had these specific names of people there to see what had happened to those people. Not a word about that in this menu, because it would spoil your appetite. Um, and I thought, you can't do that, you know? And so I did some reading, and some people call it Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> But I also found that in the meantime, you know, even in the period since we first went, um, some people are discovering they have Jewish roots there. You know, it was all kind of suppressed during the communist era. There was no kind of emphasis on Jewishness, and people didn't know that they did. So there, some young people are beginning to re react to the, have festivals, put on things, you know. So I think it, it's slowly changing, but it was very destabilizing because I was drawn to it, because here was, you know, my family were from Warsaw, but I'm sure, you know, there's a big synagogue there. I'm sure that some of them would have prayed there at some point. And, um, you know, I was drawn to it because it gave me a sense of something of what their lives might have been like. And then you're confronted with this other side, and you go, oh, you know. So it messed with my head very much, but I was kind of drawn to it. A bit like David Ferrier, you know, I might have a slight <laughs> penchant for dark tourism. Yeah. Would you like to read a bit of the, of the book? Yeah. I'm sorry for people that have heard this bit before, but it was just the one I wanted to read today. It's called It's Snowing in Vancouver, and it's um, 
for the period before we left Vancouver, when our family was kind of disintegrating. We'd moved from a house we owned to a house, a smaller house we owned, and then to a house we were renting. And though my mother didn't, oh, I, I, she didn't tell us at the time, but my father went off every morning, but he wasn't going to work. He was sitting on a park bench and feeding the birds, apparently. Uh, we didn't know except, you know, he was getting more and more volatile, but we didn't really know what was happening. The last time I spoke to my father, I was a bitch. By the summer of 64, there were tea stains on the ceiling of our house from the times my father would smash the table with his fist in a rage. I was 13. One night I was in the upstairs bathroom when he came home and banged on the door, furious, trying to get to his milk of magnesia. I have stomach cancer. He was suffering from a few things by then, I would discover, but not that. Maybe it was what his father, Jacob Joseph Wichtel, merchant of Warsaw, had died of in 1928, leaving Rosalia and their seven children to face what he couldn't possibly have foreseen, because who could? I must have told the kids at school that we were going to New Zealand before the summer holidays in June, because I remember Paul Zalewski saying, you'll be eaten by the Mau Maus. <laughs> My mother's family in Auckland sent us copies of the New Zealand Herald. I have the ghost of a memory that the newspapers were sent so my father could look for jobs. The television page of the Herald revealed one channel that comes on at two in the afternoon and finishes at 10.30 p.m. with a prayer. I flatly refused to leave, but our life in Vancouver has already ended. On the last two months, I stopped seeing my friends were as good as gone. We have to get rid of Dukey. My mother puts an ad in the paper. A family comes in their car with their other dogs to get her. We watch her anxiously staring at us out the back window of the car as the people drive away. We weep. My mother, who survived her own chaotic past by not looking back, doesn't think to get the people's contact details. Dad is furious that she's been taken away, destination unknown, and there's no way of finding out her fate. The phone keeps ringing from the ad. My mother can't talk to the callers because she keeps bursting into tears. I have to take the phone and say, the dog is gone. Dukey, I hope you had a good life. In these last months, my father seems to become a grayer, shakier, nocturnal, silent presence. He comes home one night with a gash in his head so bad it requires stitching. He said he walked into the edge of the heavy glass door at the bank. The meeting at the bank can't have gone well. We begin to spend more time together watching television. No one's bothering to tell me to go to bed, so I don't. He likes to watch Meet the Press. I start to have talks, late-night talks about philosophy, politics, and religion. We're living in a very conservative Christian neighborhood. I come home spouting what I've been told at school about Jesus, good, and communism, very, very bad. Jesus was a great philosopher, my father says. He was not the son of God. And the communists? They aren't the worst thing in the world. During these talks, I learn to admire his mind. Then I go to say goodnight to my mother. She's crying. Soon we're packing our suitcases, just what we can carry. Dad is to stay behind and crate up our belongings to send to New Zealand. My mother packs nothing of any value. The amethyst brooch that was her gift from her aunt, the hand-me-down mink coat Molly sent from New York, her engagement ring, all have long since been pawned. For some reason, she takes a large hat box. It won't fit in the overhead lockers, and will cause farcical scenes as we get jammed in the aisles of planes. My goldfish is named Dewey, after my initials, D-E-W. On our last day, I carry Dewey, sloshing unhappily in his fishbowl, around to Anne's house. I haven't seen much of her over the summer. 
We promise we'll write, and we do for a while. Recently, Anne tracked me down and came to visit me in New Zealand, trailing traces of that other world behind the closed door. She didn't, couldn't remember much about my father. She hardly ever saw him. I always went to her place where their Danish modern furniture and clean-cut blonde parents with normal accents, like a family from television. Her mother enrolled us for charm school. Our ship was going down, and I was learning the ladylike way to get out of a car. Can still do that. I can't remember much about the day we left. When we went to the airport, I felt a little put out when my father paused to put some 50-cent pieces into an instant machine, insurance machine that promised to pay out if we crashed. He always was a bit of a gambler. I don't remember saying goodbye, just turning to wave when we went through the gate. It didn't feel like a big deal. Dad was going to follow us to New Zealand. We would soon see him. After an eternity, we landed and stepped onto the tarmac to a chorus of yoo-hoo from behind the wire fence. In a photo we have, my mother looks a little deranged and we girls shell-shocked. I'm carrying the wretched hat box. The family clubbed together to finance the rescue mission that brought us to New Zealand. There was an air of disgrace about the whole enterprise. We were separated for the convoy home through the damp, lush, alien landscape. We girls climbed into the back of Uncle Jim's blue mini. I'd never seen a car so small it didn't have pedals. <laughs> what do you think of the scenery, Uncle Jim said. Lovely, I quavered, lighting on the correct answer to any question about how we found our new home. I expected you to be glamorous, but you're just ordinary girls, he said. Maybe in New Zealand that was a compliment. <laughs> There was a gathering at my grandmother's house to greet us. Other than at funerals, I would never again see so many of our relatives together. My great-aunt Alma was small and perfectly square. She said, hooray, when she meant goodbye. Also, we're a mad lot, and encouragingly, it's a great life if you don't weaken. Four months later, it's Christmas. We're living in a tiny prefab beside my grandmother's house, one road back from Milford Beach. My father phones. Come back, Diana, he says, it's snowing in Vancouver. I say, how can we come back? Mum is working six days a week. We don't even have enough money to buy shoes. My mother takes the phone away. I'm 14, angry, a bitch. He knows how much I love the snow. It's mm. fantastic. But you have a, you have a chapter, um, and you know this, I'm telling you, you have a chapter <laughs> titled A Brief History of Shouting at the Newspaper. And I was imagining you're doing a lot more shouting at the newspaper or shouting at the internet these days than even, even then. Yes, yes. These were book, when you, Books about the Holocaust, books about the, this period, are always taken as warnings from history for the present, right? Is there an element of that in there for you? In the book? Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, it was interesting. This shouting at the newspaper is just about the number of times I would read something about matters that related in some way to this theme and just get so furious. Um, I mean, there's one case of a, a Herald writer, this was 2004, who blithely wrote that anti-Semitism ended the day the concentration camps were opened. You can imagine the scenes that ensued at our house. Mm. <laughs> More than shouting at the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and it was also my, even my daughter's experience of, of, you know, at one educational institution, they were doing something on racism, and, you know, the teacher said, have any of you have any experience of that? And she said, well, I want to write about anti-Semitism. 
And she said, no, no, you can't. There's none of that here. You can't write about that. You haven't experienced any. And she said, well, you know, it may not be major, but yes, I have, apart from having one half of my family tree murdered. Yes, uh, I have some experience in that area. And, um, you know, she had to really fight. And she was texting me. I was at work, and she kept texting me, give me some examples of anti-Semitism here, you know. And so I was giving her what examples, you know, it's... it's mm small things, but to people with this background mm. and even to anyone who's interested in history, it is mm. a big deal um, when graves get desecrated, when um, people write stupid things, um, when somebody writes a thesis that says no Jews were killed in gas mm. chambers and gets an A plus for it. From, from Canterbury <laughs> University, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shouting is not the word, but um, yeah, so, um, but even when I was writing this, yes, I don't think I could have envisaged how the world would change in that, in the period since I started doing this to now. And so thus many obsessive hours spent on following down terrible rabbit holes on Twitter where there's, you know, and, you know, like a lot of things with Brexit and with um, Trump, uh, and with the fragmenting of the left to some extent in England, um, there is a lot of permission being given for some very ugly stuff to be much more mainstream than I can remember mm. ever mm. in my lifetime, mm. really. Mm. Mm. Um, you had to go looking for it, David Irving, you know, yeah. places like that. But, um, yeah, and it's very distressing. And it's, again, often these things are, as was... the. Joel Hayward and the follow-up to Joel Hayward was framed as a free speech thing, academic speech. Well, it isn't. It's a complete failure of academic standards, which is very different from free speech. Um, you can let someone write it, but you don't need to give them an A-plus for it. Mm. You can say you might want to think again. Uh, but, um, yeah, so it is. It's quite depressing. I don't think... I mean, you know, in America, there were always Nazis occasionally marching in the streets, weren't there? But it was very... Uh, marginalised, and I know I'm probably sensitised to it, to notice it and feel it, um, uh, it maybe give it undue importance. I sort of say that to myself, hopefully, that I'm giving it undue importance, but uh, it certainly makes me very uneasy, yeah. Look, there's, um, as journalists, people we often think about or get asked, do you have a book in you? You talked about Mary Varnum asking that, and we like to think, well, hey, maybe we could just be more than a journalist, we could be a writer, you know, an author. It's like a thing to aspire to. And now you've done it. Mm. Is, are, you, is, are there more books? Do you have more things to write books about? Or is this kind of your book? Well, yeah, I mean, I could not think any further at all. And then I think it's very much, well, for me, it certainly was like having a baby, you know, straight after, oh, so what's the next book? And, no, never again, back away. <laughs> you know, whatever the contraceptive is against writing books, I want it. Um, but... Um, usually sing the royalty statements, isn't it? That should be the, hey? Usually sing the royalty statements before they know enough. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of work. And, yeah, you might as well flip burgers, really. But, you know... <laughs> But, yeah, I had a strong reason for doing this one. But um, I guess what I do find is I'm now starting to miss having a project that is so engrossing. And I might never find one as engrossing as that, but I live in hope maybe, you know, 
maybe mm. there will be something I'll, I'll uh, find engrossing enough to put yourself through that again. Mm. Yeah. We might have time. Uh, are there any questions or even statements that sound a bit like questions? <laughs> um, I'm open, we're open to those. I know people are anti-statements, but we're, we're okay about statements. There are a couple of people with microphones, so put your hand up if you have a question or statement. Anyone? We'll go to this. Ah, here he is with this chap over here. Uh, hello, Diana and Philip. Um, I'd like to make a statement and eventually get around to a question. Uh, I worked with the, these two people at the Listener magazine and I would like to dispute uh, Philip's portrait mm. uh, of the office as a den of sloth <laughs> and incompetence. In fact, we're very hardworking and diligent. Um, my question is about that. Uh, as I say, I used to work there and so did Philip, Diana, you're still there. How many years has it been, and why are you still there? <laughs> um, well, it's 34 years this year that I have been. <laughs> Nobody clapped at work, but... <laughs> No, I mean, I've thought about it. Um, it, it. I've been in the same relationship for 37 years, I think, the same house for 36 years or something. And this, nobody does that anymore, you know. I couldn't even tell you how many jobs my children have had and things like that, but they are aghast, really. But I've thought about it. I thought, well, for one reason, I wasn't a trained journalist. And back in the day when I joined The Listener, it was full of mad people who weren't mm. trained journalists. Um, when I got the job, I was surprised. Uh, we were a little branch office in Auckland, and um, my partner saw the ad for a television writer, and I love television. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll apply for that. I was an academic, well, tutor at the university, but that was going to run out. I had a child, so I couldn't move, really. So I applied. And um, to my horror, oh, they sent me off to do an interview. I took a ghetto blaster, which was my only means of um, recording this interview. It was with Katerina Denave from mm. television. And I couldn't type, so... Um, Perfect. Perfectly I wrote qualified. my... <laughs> I wrote my story long. shorthand? <laughs> no, I couldn't do shorthand. Don't be silly. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyhow, I was really a great candidate, but somehow I got... I did a story and I got the job. Uh, yeah, and it was a terrific place because it was full of, you know, Gordon Campbells and Sue McTaggart's and all these people who were crazy brilliant writers. And um, I remember looking at it when I found I got the job. I read it, but really looking at the stories, Jeff Chappell, everyone, and just going, oh, my God, I cannot be doing this because they were so brilliant. It was the most daunting thing on earth. So I went around for a whole weekend with dark glasses on um, and people said, what's wrong? What's happened? Because I looked so distraught. I've got a job at the listener. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah, uh, so maybe it's a little bit like, for me, it was like a bit of a, one of the few places I was equipped to do any work. But, um, uh, yeah, and I mean, the kind of area I work in, writing about television, mostly doing profiles, 
uh, is a wonderful area to work in because in writing about television, in the end, you'll write about anything you want because it's all on television. And um, sitting down and doing profiles is the most incredible thing. People tell you your, their stories and you write about it. And, you know, some, one journalist pointed out to me that in doing this, you know, I was always trying to get people's stories that I was writing my father's profile. Well, maybe, but yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, but I do think, thinking about it, having written this, and obviously thinking about the past, everything was so fragmented, and our family, our lives were broken, just splintered, and they've never really cohered fully since. So I just think I'm really bad at change, actually, <laughs> is what it is. Anyone else? Right down here. Um, hello, Diana and hello. Philip. Um, I think you sort of touched on this anyway, but uh, I'd just like to ask you, you know, what do you feel having written this book about the rise of the far right, which is happening in America and also spreading once again in places like Saxony and, and throughout Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, the rise again of Holocaust deniers sort of following in the um, wake of David Irving? Mm. Yeah, well, as I say, it's absolutely horrifying to me, and I just never could have predicted that would happen. And, you know, just recently, Poland, this law, which makes it very problematic to talk about what happened in Poland. And, um, you know, um, I wondered halfway through, well, not why I'd finished it by then, but halfway through this sort of coming out into the world, whether you know, can I go back to Poland? Because the book does address the fact that there was anti-Semitism, that um, there's a story of my great uncle in here. And it, it, because he actually wrote down some of what happened to him, he survived on the Aryan side of Warsaw hiding out. And great many of his... Um, he, he writes very, without much, you know, it's very cool, coolly written. He doesn't write about the tragedy much. But he writes about every time he went out, you know, one of his fellow citizens would try and turn him in because they'd recognize he was a Jew or suspect he was a Jew. So he escaped by the skin of his teeth many times from that. Uh, equally, in Poland, uh, it was one of the few places, I think, where it was instant death penalty for you and your family if you helped a Jew. Uh, so there's those two poles, and a great many very brave people did. And I met one of them in Warsaw who, as his family, saved his school friend. Uh, so, yeah, um, to see the rise of this in those places again uh, is horrifying. And, you know, as I say, I try and think um, sanity will prevail, but I don't have any great optimism at the moment that that's the case. I sometimes think we're kind of drifting into a new dark ages. Um, yeah, so. I blame the internet. <laughs> well, YouTube in particular, you know, you've talked to David Nywitch, right? He was yes, beat here yes, on yes, yes, Thursday like night. In journalism, uh, that's another good thing. You know, David Nywitch, who's at this festival, has written a book about the, the rise of the alt-right. And he's studied it for a very long time. And that is an incredible book. I recommend it. Uh, it lays everything out, and uh, it's not reassuring at all. But 
um, it's a bit of a call to arms, I think, in a way, to protect democracy, you know? Get out, vote, what can you do? You know, I said to him, what can you do? You have to vote, you have to engage. Um, it's a very timely book, yeah, and it's here at this festival. Thank you for mentioning that. <clears throat> My name's Sydney Wheel. Um, <clears throat> I'm, your book has many, many themes, but one in particular that interests me is the issue of identity. Uh, my, my wife, young daughter, and I came to New Zealand in 1995. We've since had another daughter. We have a very, very rich gene pool, which we celebrate. It's, it's us. It's what we were, what we are, what we will be. It's, it's <clears throat> and I guess one of the things that has surprised me the 22 years that we've been here is we've met many, many, many New Zealanders who either don't know their identity or don't wish to discuss it, and certainly don't celebrate it. I find that very sad, as you can hear, because I'm very biased in terms of identity. Of course, it's a two-edged sword. Can be, you can use it for good or for bad. Uh, <clears throat> but this has, 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 has fascinated us. And for example, recently, um, my daughter's partner, I asked her, uh, well, what is his background, love? And she said, he's a New Zealander, Dad. And I said, but what is his heritage? Is he Scottish, Irish, Polish, Venezuelan? What is his background? Oh, I don't know, Dad. And I said, well, I hope you'll find out, or I hope he will find out, because it's a richness, for, it's a cause for celebration. So the question I really want to ask you is, I don't know whether you agree with my perception that identity is generally shoved aside, ignored, certainly not celebrated much, in New Zealand, whether you agree, and if you do agree, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing for a country uh, that, that people do not celebrate, enjoy their heritage, uh, their identity? Mm. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's correct. I mean, in my, I can only talk from my experience of coming here, um, and I think the way I've sort of felt is that in a sort of pioneering country, a young country, People come for various reasons. And, you know, back in the day, not that long ago, coming here meant you may not see the rest of your family ever again. You know, it was not that many years back. Um, I know my mother made one trip in all the years back to New Zealand from Canada uh, when we were little babies, and that was a nightmare. But, um, but, yeah, I think something about that not looking back maybe comes with being a young country. But... On the other hand, there are people here who celebrate their identity very strongly and increasingly strongly, and I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, I think that we're a bicultural, multicultural um, place, and all that is fantastic. We've got so much to learn, and I think we undervalue how much we have absorbed of those things. You know, um, in the again, very recently in the last few years, just as a journalist, for instance the number of words of Tereo that you can now drop into a story without having to put in brackets what it means. We have absorbed, we have absorbed, I think, ways of thinking and being here that we're not even always 100% aware of. There are people who find it threatening, so you have that debate going on, and who obviously think are ambivalent or think it's positively a bad thing and that we should all somehow maintain our little disparate identities. But the thing that gives me great hope about this country is the way that merging is happening quietly and sometimes not so quietly. Um, yeah, and for me, you know, I certainly had very little sense of identity. I mean, my, on my mother's side, none of them knew back more than 
the people they could remember, really, almost. There was very little family history on that side, and more of that's come out a bit. Interesting stuff, too, but, yeah, why didn't we know about that? Why was that not celebrated in our family? And um, I never, when we came here, we had no contact with the Jewish community. My mother was a Catholic family, and, you know, I felt like for a very long time I never met a Jewish person, and I realized later I did, but we never talked about it. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a small community here, I think. That's partly what it is. But, um, yeah, um, and for me, identity is very important. And, you know, I feel like I'm more at home with my slightly mixed, weird identity now. And certainly my daughter is fierce about her identity. Uh, she's taken for all our kids have different degrees of interest and involvement in it. And my niece, you know, my two nieces have gone off and done birthright trips to Israel, very cool-eyed, in a cool-eyed fashion, you know. But they are interested in finding out about the Jewish heritage. And one of them is learning to make challah, you know, the bread, and has told me we're having Passover at my place at Easter. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, they're all picking up on the identity. And it's in a very, you know, it's not a particularly formal way or anything. But, yeah, I think it is to be celebrated. And I'm still nervous about celebrating and possibly more nervous than ever. I used to be a bit paranoid about it in a Holocaust survivor's child way. You know, if you let it be known you've got Jewish heritage and anything like this happened again. And I used to think, how silly, don't be ridiculous. But, you know, um, so there's that level of paranoia. And then, you know, there's other things that uh, uh, affect that now, that, um, you know, the politics of the Middle East and things that make it a difficult conversation sometimes. So, yeah, but no, I think I would say I would agree with you, it is to be celebrated. And I think you might, well, I found my kids as they've got older, that's when they start to get a bit more interested. Um, and it means more to them. One more here. We'll go with this. Oh, sorry, have you got one? Okay. Yes. Kia ora, Diana. Thank you very, very much for your book and also your amazing, amazing television reviews that we've enjoyed for so many years. Um, you were one of the striking things about uh, Warsaw, about Warsaw, is um, the rebuild of the old town. You were travelling with an architect, <laughs> um, and obviously, as, as well as the you know touristiness of um, of Kazimier. Does Christchurch give you any, uh, you know, resonances in terms of rebuilding after trauma? Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've both been really... We've, my partner wrote a bit about Christchurch from that aspect, you know, over the years. When he was at the Herald, he isn't there anymore. But, um, yeah, and we both are wandering around here absolutely fascinated with what's going on and the reaction to a rebuild like this. But, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to say anything. We talk to people here to see what they think, really, about what's happening. Um, it, certainly since the last time I came here, um, things have changed quite radically. Uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know what everyone thinks about it. But... It still feels like about 1946 to the rest of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, we can swan in and say, oh, you know, I was thinking maybe some some of the destroyed things should be left as a sort of memorial. And then I thought to myself, well, it's up to the people who live here. Maybe you don't want to be reminded of that. 
you know, it is traumatic, isn't mm -hmm. it? And um, is that a discussion? That's no, that is a discussion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard people say the ruins are kind of re-traumatising and they don't want to come back into town until it's yeah. cleared and yeah. rebuilt and others yeah. who think we should have a memorial left in some, some way. Oh, there's one more question. I think, it should be a gra I think it should be a ground up, a grassroots kind of... This might have to be the last one, I think, because we're nearly out of time. Um, I'm from Poland, um, and um, I don't necessarily agree with the way the Polish government went about trying to stamp out the Polish death camps. Um, New Zealand media are guilty of using that phrase, so I think it kind of needs to be addressed, but not necessarily in that way. Um, I do notice that we've been here for nearly an hour and Poland got mentioned quite a lot, whereas Germany did not get mentioned once. So my question is, do you think that we are at risk of kind of accepting a historical narrative in which Poland is the worst perpetrator of the Holocaust in Germany is, or was, yeah, I, perhaps. I totally Thank understand you. what you're saying. And in my book, I make very clear, I, I mention speaking to someone about this in Poland and um, the sensitivities to the way language is used around this. And I fully agree, and I would never say Polish death camps. They are Nazi death camps, German death camps in Nazi-occupied Poland. Um, so I agree with that. It's more, my fear was around people not being able to tell the stories of um, Yad Vebna and Kilce, those places. You know, some um, survivors did go back to their homes after liberation and were murdered, you know. So I don't think we can sweep that away, but I fully agree. We have to be very careful with how we use language. And I did say all my family were murdered by the Nazis. <laughs> so German people. <laughs> mm. Mm. But um, no, I mean, I, I am completely sympathetic to the idea that you don't um, uh, let that line blur. But it's equally important to be allowed to say what really happened. For survivors, I read just the other day a survivor of one of those somehow survived one of those pogroms talking about it. You, they must be allowed to talk about it um, as truthfully as possible. And yes, you know, the exact facts of the matter can be debated. But um, no, I think, you know, if it were just, let's not use that terminology, I'm 100% behind that. Uh, but if it gets to where people feel a chilling effect about talking about what happened for fear of legal or um, other sort of uh, repercussions. Uh, I'm thinking of Jan Gross, who wrote Neighbours and um, Fear. Uh, and uh, he's a Polish-American academic, and he wrote about the pogroms that happened and um, got himself into a bit of bother over it. You know, I think you can debate his reading or his figures or whatever, but he must be allowed to do it. Okay, well, thank you, Diana. Uh, we're out of time. We probably have a thousand more questions we could ask, but um, Diana uh, will be signing books at the signing table, and if you don't have one, buy one, and if you have one, buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Diana.